0: Welcome to the new series of The Sacred. Welcome back. My name is Elizabeth Oldfield and I am the host. Uh, This is a podcast about listening across divides and understanding the deep values that drive us. We are kicking off with a recording of a sacred live we did at the Greenbelt Festival this summer. So without further ado, we're going to go straight over to listen to an interview I did with Cole Arthur Riley. Good morning, everybody. It is delightful to see your faces. Um, My name is Elizabeth Oldfield and this is The Sacred Live. We are so thrilled to be here at Greenbelt recording this live conversation. If you've not come across The Sacred, it's a podcast which has been running for five years that I think qualifies us as almost early adopters. And in it, I speak to a wide range of people in public life who have some kind of public voice, who I think are in some ways shaping our common life. And I ask them what is sacred to them. I want to get beyond the kind of adversarial today program style clashes, or indeed the kind of self-promoting interviews that uh, happen when everyone's going around saying the same things uh, to everyone that they speak to. I'm really interested in the health of our common life, how we live together, despite our very many differences and disagreements. And I found trying to listen to the person behind the position to get a sense of really what their vision of the good is, although we rarely say it as explicitly as that, Um, what are they trying to do in public and how have they got to where they are really helps me, and I need this, grow in curiosity and empathy for people who are not like myself. We speak to people from all different tribes, from any uh, controversial issue you can think of, we will have spoken to people who hold opposing views. And honestly, it's become a spiritual practice for me. It's, a we- it's an act of resistance to the polarizing, dehumanizing tides that I see in our society coming through our information technology, from the ways, from the demographic changes that keep trying to sort us into little pockets who increasingly can't bear each other. That is not something that I am prepared to allow to happen to me because of my faith and because it just sounds much less fun than a society in which we listen well to each other across the divides. So please go look at the back catalogue, find someone both who you think, oh, I'd like to listen to them. Notice how they're probably a bit like you and someone who you go, oh, do not want to listen to them. And notice what is it in them That is setting off very tiny little tribal reaction in yourself and see if you can try and listen to both. I am so pleased to welcome our guest today, Cole Arthur Riley, who I know from both talking to friends and just overhearing people in queues has already been just the most enormous blessing uh, through the talks that she's done so far. Her book, This Here Flesh, has been a huge encouragement and inspiration and a blessing to me. She is a writer. She is the creator of uh, Black Liturgies, which is an Instagram account, but more than that really, it feels like it's a sort of communications platform spreading goodness, particularly in spaces where sometimes that's a hard thing to find. And she's with us today uh, for The Sacred. So I am going to kick off, this is just in case I need it, um with the opening question, and I checked this with Cole. Going straight deep, uh, uh, scare some guests. Luckily, I think Cole's a bit like me and that she's got no patience for small talks, so she's very happy that we're going to go in the deep end. Having
1: had a little bit of time to think about it, Cole, what is sacred to you? The thing that first came to mind when I saw that that question was was storytelling, maybe more generally stories, so both the telling of them, but also receiving them and holding them um and and I think not just story in terms of memory although you know I I write about it it's very important to me like keeping memory well as a collective but I also think making up stories you know the kind of mischievous weird kind of mystical stories that we tell and pass on to our children are can be beautiful and, and and sacred as well yeah
0: have there been times in your life where it's felt like that sacred value is coming under pressure where you've had to choose to be loyal to it, or maybe you haven't managed to be loyal to it, which I think happens to all of us at times.
1: Yes. All the time. I, I feel, um, well for a number of reasons, but the older I get, the, the, the more I kind of realize like the truest story is rarely the one that survives. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, so much of my own doing and kind of diluting and reworking or rewriting something that I I know feels true to me in the presence of someone that I'm not quite sure is going to receive it. And so you kind of bend yourself and contort yourself into all kinds of shapes and end up saying things that you absolutely don't believe to be true. Um, and, so yeah, I, I would say when I started Black Liturgies, the project that you mentioned in in your intro, um, which is more of a, especially initially more of a kind of Christian centered space, I came under a lot of critique and um, offended a lot of people, and had to really deal in a meaningful way with my just complete and total fear of being seen and, um, realize, okay, this project is growing and growing and growing. I can't avoid being seen. Do I want to be seen with, uh, with some kind of lens of truth or I'm going to, or am I going to continue to sacrifice myself on these altars of kind of, um, other people's opinions or perceptions?
0: What helped you try and tell the truest story you knew how to tell?
1: I think staying close to people who have witnessed my life, who knew me long before I was kind of sitting on stages like this. Um, it, it, it keeps, it, it makes it so that it's very difficult to drift too far from myself. I have a pretty opinionated um, friend group that I think really balances me well and that, they don't tolerate a lot of insincerity and not be not in an accusatory way, but in a sense of you deserve more, just tell it, tell it how it happened or tell it how you dreamed it. If it's a myth or something like that. Um, and, and so that's, that's helpful. I have a, my best friend in the world, we grew up down the street from each other. And I mean, he knew me when I could quite literally barely speak out loud and um, has seen me in college when I tried to completely rework myself into this kind of witty, charismatic. um, It was a weird experiment. (laughs) I thought, college, I'm going to find myself. And I just made myself up. And and, and having him close throughout my life, it always is kind of a, a tether, you know, in that sense. I'm just
0: imagining him just like cocking a sardonic eyebrow at you. (laughs) What are you doing? Yeah, I love it. (laughs) Um, I'd like to wind back and get a sense of your childhood. What were the big ideas in the air as you were growing up?
1: Big ideas. Well, big ideas in my family. My grandma is a storyteller. Maybe that's why that's a value that feels so sacred to me. Um, She was the best storyteller and very um very confident in her art she she wrote poetry as well as as stories and so there was i i think in the air was kind of a belief in the the fact that we had something to contribute to the creation of the world that you know unapologetically. I, I said this yesterday how my dad would kind of bribe us to write poems and stories, and what that does is kind of instill in you kind of what I think is a sacred arrogance to say you actually have something to give, you have something to contribute. Um, and so that was in the air, but also a lot of humor. Um, I'm I'm not very funny, but my family is very very funny. They're they're just like the most lovely charismatic, charming people. And so there was a lot of humor, a lot of levity and play and a lot of um, intimacy between generations. Their extended family was all kind of crammed into one house. There are times where I lived with my grandma and aunt. There were times where my uncle lived with us. And there was so much kind of transitivity and um, that intergenerational connection that I think was part of the air we were breathing.
0: You've written a little bit about sometimes feeling um, unusual in your family that were funny and loud and crowded. Did you ever, um, yeah, could you just just say a bit more about that experience?
1: Yes. So yes, my family. They're just very charming. If they were here, you surely would all be looking at them off stage, even though I'm the one with the mic. And I I love that about them. They're just very open, kind of hearted people, and um, they don't take themselves too seriously. I came out and just refused to speak (laughs) for the most part. I I had something called selective mutism, which is kind of an anxiety disorder that's most commonly found in children, where you kind of feel like you're unable to speak in the presence of a lot, certain people. So, apart from like my dad, my sister, my grandma, and my aunt, I, I really struggled um, until I was around seven or eight, and I took speech classes for years because I was so delayed um, and had so many speech impediments. Um, but my dad. I think he was really worried for me and um knew I was gonna need something to kind of connect me to other people. Like I it would not be uncommon to find me like in a closet somewhere reading like a goosebumps books, which is a this um and I was right. <laughs> so, and I would just be by myself and um I think my distinction or, you know, my, my difference in my family, I think my dad recognized that's quickly becoming a kind of portal to isolation. And he was, he's a very, he was a very young dad. I mean, he had me when he was 18, my sister, when he was 16, but he had this intuition of what am I, what am I going to do? You know, I, I can't leave her out to see, but I need to honor who she is. And so that's kind of how writing began for me. It was my dad giving me the pen and saying every day, you know. They come through these two
0: characters in your book, Grandma Phyllis, who I am in love with and would like her to adopt me, (laughs) who uh, had this incredibly traumatic childhood of abuse on all levels. And Carrie that carries it is a a poet and an activist and so clearly fed so much beauty into you. And your dad, Stephen, is that mm-hmm, right? Yeah. It's funny, they live in my head now. <laughs> uh, it's, you know, this teen dad who had his own troubles, right? Who had his own struggles, but seemed to be able to speak words over you that dignified you at a deep level. Could you explain the ritual he did with your hair yeah. and how that shaped you?
1: Yeah, so my dad was a single dad from, I was two months, my sister was two years when, when my teenage dad took over. And so he had, he had to learn to do all of the things, including little black girls hair who are squirming and tender headed. And he would do our hair every morning and, um, black people know you kind of like, well, we don't really do this anymore so much, but grease grease um, we grease our children's scalps when we're, we're while we're braiding, and um, he would always end. Uh, we took turns in between his legs, and when we were done, we'd go to his bathroom, and he'd lick his fingers and kind of brush back our eyebrows. And he would say, "You look good. Do you feel good?" Uh, every single morning, "You look good. Do you feel good?" And sometimes it was yes, sometimes it was no, but that kind of affirmation of dignity after this embodied ritual of him you know doing our hairs putting cocoa butter on our skin um yeah I think that lives in me yeah
0: it shimmers um in your public presence your dad bribed you to write poems and put a pen in your hand when did it become when did you come to a realization that this might be part of the work that was yours
1: to do in the world, that this might be something close to a vocation? Um, yeah, I love answering this question because there, the moment is so clear to me. I was still quite young. I, I don't know exactly what age, but definitely not even yet in high school. And my sister and I had been playing this board game. We went to put it away under our coffee table. And I remember clear as day, I saw this navy hardcovered, book with silver kind of embossed lettering. And um, yeah, we don't have, we didn't have many books in my home growing up. If there was a book in the house, it was mine. And so I saw this like very ornate, beautiful book. And I I remember, at least in my memory, it's such a kind of things slow down. I'm sure when I lived it, it wasn't that, but you know, callings come differently in memories. I picked up the book and my sister goes, "Yeah, you don't know, Grandma. Grandma wrote a poem. It's published in the book." And I turn to the first page, and well, maybe not the exact first page, but the first poem in the anthology—the first poem in the anthology of poems was Phyllis Marie Arthur's. And I remember being so confused because when you're, you know, it, it never occurred to me. That's how I know I was quite young because it had never occurred to me. I'd been reading so much, but it never occurred that someone like me could actually have their words read and it just did something to me it's kind of hard to put words to I was like oh that's that's a possibility and I think that was the beginning of my imagination of what if I wrote and people read it besides my father you know (laughs) um yeah why do you think it felt like
0: someone like you might not be able to do that
1: That's a good question. I don't know if there was a singular moment. Did you say when or why? Why? What's why? Your- okay. That. I think, you know, in in my family at least, w- my family's not readers. My dad—they won't be offended by this. My dad would never claim to be a reader. Um. So I think on a kind of familial level, I didn't understand that what I was doing in private—you know, my journal entries, my poems could translate outside of the home, but also in school, because I wasn't very verbal still, I was coming out of selective mutism somewhat, but I still was very shy. I had a lot of difficulty communicating with teachers. I didn't have, I think even my college professors are shocked at where I am today because I spoke so little, even in college, because you see potential in a child, in different ways and under certain lenses. And I don't think, I think my dad knew, you know, and was like my biggest fan. But in general, I don't think most people in my life would have taken me very seriously as someone who had something to say. Mm.
0: Yeah. And um, one of the things, one of the little short vignettes in the book is someone, I think maybe a spiritual director saying to you that they'd never seen anyone be able to be an activist and a contemplative equally well. Mm -hmm. And you thought, uh, I'll take that on. Yes. Sounds like the kind of challenge I like. Mm -hmm. Um, My guess is Greenbelt is full of both those categories of people and some people trying to be both, but that I think it's one of the divides that we can struggle to cross. That those of us who feel like, okay, the way we respond to the pain of the world is so clearly needs to be about inner work, right? Mm -hmm. It needs to be about discipleship or dealing with our shadow side or, um, you know, dealing with our unconscious bias or whatever the language that's comfortable to us is. And that's the only way that we can fix the world. And then those that say, yes, yes, fine, but the world is burning, let's march. Mm -hmm. Like (laughs) it is outward, active, activist postures that are important here and everything else is just a distraction. Mm-hmm. Do you see that
1: divide and what helps us cross it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I definitely, I see that divide. And I think maybe in the past few years, I've seen more of a hunger to kind of bridge it and, and more of a recognition. I mean, you see this on in social media spaces. So many of the the activists who really shepherded us through the summer of 2020 and and, in the wake of so much grief and, um, black trauma, a a lot of them have gone quiet Mm -hmm. and they're in this kind of season of reclamation of, of self, of rest, of, of things like beauty, because, um, I just do not think it's possible to sustain any kind of meaningful liberation pursuit without a kind of contemplative, connection, a connection to one's interior life and, um, and vice versa. I mean, I'm maybe more of the opposite where I feel very safe inside myself and safe journeying into my interior life. And, um, but I'm, I'm not, I'm not someone who readily is going to contend with, the violence I do day to day in the world because of that interior world. So I think both are, are, are needed. And, you know, activism without work of the interior life will just leave you completely exhausted and used and, and actually vulnerable and in a system of rep- replicating injustice by kind of sacrificing your body for the cause. And I think, you know, a journey into one's interior life without an awareness of how we move in the world and the injustice in the world, um, can become extremely lonely and, um, and numb and, and just a completely numb life where you might feel okay, but kind of just dissociated from the really present physical pains around you and in you. So it makes you vulnerable in a different way.
0: Yeah. I sometimes, I've got friends who talk a bit about spiritual bypassing, that the, it's a sort of to distract ourselves from the pain of the world. We go inwards, but whatever the opposite of spirit activist bypassing. Mm. <laughs> um, we refuse to deal with the mess inside. Mm. I feel like Black Liturgies is doing something, possibly the reason it's been um people have received it with such hunger is that it seems like it's trying to hold together those two things. Could you tell me about the genesis of it?
1: Yeah, I started Black Liturgies in the summer of 2020. Um, so, yeah, it was kind of a a kind of slew of very public black murders by white people. Um, Elijah McClain, um, this precious tender soul, was murdered while apologizing and kind of plea. I mean, it's heartbreaking. And then um, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, George Floyd, and this kind of chain of very publicized deaths. Um, and of course, George Floyd, I think, left the world. Um, not Black people. I think Black people have known for years. I mean, these are the stories we have to tell our kids. We've known. But there's something about the, the world turning their ears and eyes to it for the first time that changes how the, you feel, the grief of it. Um, and I attend a I attend an Episcopal church and the Sunday after George Floyd's death was Pentecost. I remember it very clearly it's the pandemic. So I'm in bed walking onto this church service and just feeling so empty and and um yeah, I I've said it. there are days that are it's just very hard to pray words written by a white man. And the Book of Common Prayer is beautiful, but I also know what was happening to my ancestors when Thomas Cranmer wrote the Book of Common Prayer and wrote those words that were not meant for me at that time. And so it's complicated. And that night, I, it's like the idea came to me as the words came to me. I said, I think I'm going to start a project called Black Liturgies and write prayers. But connect to black grief. I told my husband this in bed and he's like, okay. And I'm like, Okay. And then the next day I did it. Um, thinking it would be kind of just this very small thing. Um, I wasn't, I'm not social media savvy and hadn't been up until that point. So I didn't understand how these accounts work and how they can grow. And, um, and it quickly did. And I think in part, because there was a hunger for that connection between kind of, interior work and justice, but also we were in the midst of a a pandemic and people were contending with a different kind of loneliness and desperate for some kind of connection that they weren't getting in person at churches. And also, I think people were looking around in their churches and realizing that they weren't as safe as they thought they were, you know, because of how people had been responding that summer. So all of those things together, I think, kind of led to Black liturgies growing. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, and one of the things that that account does, and your book does, and you do in public, is really champion emotions, healthy emotions, um, as a, as legitimate public expression. In contrast to, and partic- I don't know, the, uh, particularly in Britain, it feels like for a long time, legitimate public expression, not quite still stiff up a lip, but if you want to be taken seriously in public you will remain calm and rational at all times, Um, which is of course gendered. But I'd love to hear, um, I want to talk about two specific emotions, grief and rage. Let's start with grief. And could you tell me about Sister June
1: and what she taught you? Yes. Um, Yeah, I feel like I haven't told this story since I wrote the book. So Sister June, I moved to Philly after graduating college and I was working for this um, Episcopal church in partnership with this small Catholic university. And one of the the sisters there, we'll call her Sister June, because that's what I call her in the book. Um, she would take me to this prayer labyrinth. Um, she would take me to this prayer prayer labyrinth and we'd walk the prayer. Uh, are, is that a familiar concept, prayer lab? Labyrinths. There's probably one here somewhere, right? Okay, um, yeah. So we would walk that together. Um, I didn't have many friends, and so I think the sisters felt a responsibility to kind of <laughs> care for me and give me things to do. Um, and she would often cry. We didn't walk it side by side. We, we she would start, and then I would kind of trail behind her, like um, following her. And um, she would often just. Cry softly, and there was one particular day where she was in the center and taking a long time. And I know she's crying. She knows that I know that she's crying. And you know, I'm trying to linger to not enter the center at the same time as her. And she looks over, and she's just like, "Well, come on," you know. Um, and so I enter the the center with her, and she shows me this photo um, of her sister. And you know, sometimes grief doesn't need an exact you know explanation and I think there was it was mostly a moment where words were irrelevant even though I was trying to say them I said I asked something probably not what I really wanted to ask I think I might have said older like is it your older sister or younger sister and she didn't even answer it she didn't even acknowledge because she knows that's not really what what we're doing here you know this is grief um and she just started to tell me about her and we walked out of the labyrinth side by side and i think i think about that a lot about what it means to have to to have the courage to invite someone to come to the the center with you the center of your grief where you've encountered so much and someone who's almost a stranger to you we weren't that close she was trying to you know be company to me Um, but also the, the, the power of not turning away, you know, not walking my own way on, on the labyrinth and trying to divert my gaze from someone else's pain. But like, it takes a courage. I'm realizing now it took courage for me to step into the center with her and say, I'll, I'll be here and I'm not going to rush us. And I'm not going to ask things that I, 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 that I'm not really asking, you know, (laughs) I'm going to listen and be present. And I, um metaphorically i think i think about that a lot of who, who can i who can i invite into this with me there's that prov- proverb that's like grief shared is half grief and you know yes. joy is shared is double joy and and what does it mean to be a person of invitation yeah there's this line right at the end of that story that
0: probably we've probably reached a lot of people's throwaway line but it's something like um what sister june's doing in the labyrinth is she's letting herself walk into her grief yeah but then she's letting herself walk out of it again. And something about the labyrinth helps her hold it without fearing that she'll get stuck there. Yes. I have a friend called Laura Fabriki who um, should be a public theologian. It's not yet for various reasons. Um, who talks about the Psalms as emotion processing technology. And that, it seems like that, I, I was thinking of that phrase a lot reading your book, that r- emotions denied go bad places. Yes getting stuck in emotions is unhelpful too. And so I've, I've taken that image of like, let myself walk into the labyrinth of my hard feelings and feel them and then let myself walk out again. Mm-hmm. And that, that pattern is part of the liturgy that we who are Christians can find, I think, in our scriptures and in um, the communal practices that, that, that it's emotion processing technology yes. that we're doing together. I wanted to ask you about rage. Um your oh, there's various bits in your book I could read, which I just thought were extremely powerful for expressing rage at injustice. Um, you're so softly spoken in person that, you know, I've listened to a lot of interviews with you now. And in fact, I'll just ask you this first. Do you find it easier to express rage on the page than in person?
1: No, I don't find either very easy. Um so the um the rage chapter was definitely the hardest to write and the chapter like when I got my notes back from my editor it was like we're so excited and then it got to the chapter 9 rage and it was like we're going to do this again. <laughs> he's so nice instead of because I'd managed to write an entire chapter on rage without it translating at all into a kind of felt experience. It was very over-intellectualized and I had completely kind of removed that fr- from the page. And so that is the one chapter where I, I it was virtually a rewrite. And I said, you, you need to go someplace more honest in yourself, Cole, and just be for real right now because that... Um, what I wrote wasn't bad, but again, it was much more academic, much more removed than we needed it to be. So I struggle with both. Um, but I definitely struggle in person. I'm like gripping my leg, even just talking about <laughs> <That's okay. laughs> anger, um, because I've been trained to, to, to just demonize my anger so much. And, you know, there is the kind of, trope of the black the angry black woman that i've tried to resist so much that i've ended up really doing myself a disservice and dishonoring myself in moments um and it's hard to rewire that you you need to really be in a safe place to express Well, i do i need to be in a really good safe place to express anger um
0: yeah uh i had a previous guest on the sacred who um you also quote, quote uh, Professor Willie Jennings, who is um, a theologian, professor of Africana studies, and um, he said this extraordinary thing about it when he's in his Pentecostal church. One of the things they say about conflict in his community is when you're hang- when you're angry, not if, when you're angry, hold their hand. Mm. Like, totally fine to be angry. You need to express that anger. And as you express that anger, hold their hand. It's making me cry even think about it because there's something very profound about it. As you've been l- tr- learning to express rage when it's appropriate, and particularly over the last y- year, rage at the injustice is done to black people. What what helps us? Either if, you know, in my case, you're a white person and you're desperately trying to listen but also sinful and broken so occasionally feeling very defensive and not having the energy or just like dealing with the own crap that I have in here and as you say in the book you as a black person being like exhausted by having to explain or educate or express your feelings my hope is that it is possible to do what Willie Jennings says but I don't I don't know quite how what have you learned? Well, feel free to either reject that premise. <laughs> that that's my provocation to you it's not really a question.
1: Yes. Um no, I agree. I agree with what he said. And my grandma, she said something similar about um she she suffered from a lot of um abuse that was facilitated by the church and um had a very kind of alienated relationship with God and the divine and she talked about her anger at God actually being a, a tether to to God, because anger—I mean, it's not exactly the "holds your hand" remark, but it's something similar. Of anger, anger comes for you. It's a um, emotion toward m- towards something. Apathy—you're you're sitting back, you're disengaging, you're tu- you're turning—you know—you're turning your back on something. And she said, "It was actually my anger that kept me, my anger at God that kept me near to." to to them, Um, which I find beautiful and and can totally be translated into on a human level Mm -hmm. to to have a kind of belief to say, in my anger, there's actually a a kind of anger that is not about destruction or um, not about degrading someone's dignity, but is actually so much in defense of dignity that you feel this kind of magnet toward that which is being either demeaned or the perpetrator yeah. of that. You feel this this something in you rise to try to meet that. And I think that's beautiful. And the sense of, I mean, Willie Jennings maybe said it more in a, um, even a more tender way, the sense of hold their hand to say, I won't let you. I I, w- I won't let you because I believe in the dignity of the man who shoots into a closed door and kills a black woman in the night. I believe that's not what they were meant for. And that's actually operating outside of their dignity. And so whenever I rise in anger, it's, 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 it's not an act of um, destruction. It's actually calling someone back into their humanity, calling someone back into their dignity. If I can remember that as it's happening, I think that makes us all a bit more brave Mm. in terms of, having a kind of possession over our rage
0: yeah it's anger in the service of the relationship they're saying this this I care enough about whatever this connection is that I'm not gonna pretend this never happened and just let this thing die
1: mm-hmm. I'm
0: gonna express it to you mm-hmm. so its it's been a really powerful reframe for me who also is not super comfortable with anger yeah. it's a natural thing um as we have those conversations you wrote a piece in the atlantic atlantic washington post about black history month um and the white gaze and it's been a really helpful i've spent in the past some time thinking about the male gaze and kind of feminist theory and the way it objectifies women and makes them feel uh just the struggle to be taken seriously either just not as a collection of what however i happen to appear but New stories, you anyway, know, it was just a helpful way in for me. Um, and I wanted to ask for my own growth, really, what is the opposite of the white gaze? Where are those moments across difference? And we won't always need this, right? Hopefully, most of the time, we're just people raising families together or being in church together or, you mm-hmm. know, digging our gardens together. But when there are moments where the differences between us become live and maybe painful, what is a conversation? How can I as a white person show up in ways that are not doing that? Mm. Objectifying.
1: Yes. Um, I, I love this question. The The first part, what is the opposite of the white gaze? You know, there's some instinct that would maybe say the opposite of the white gaze is the black gaze or is the kind of collective diverse gaze. But I actually, as I say that it doesn't really feel true. I think maybe the truer thing is the opposite of the white gaze is a gaze of kind of um unapologetic particularity it's a kind of um a gaze that is aware of someone on a in- individual particular, in the context of their particular story and the particular time that they lived. So, okay, maybe I'll say it this way. All the time, people ask me who I wrote this year flesh for, which is so They're asking if I wrote it for black people or if I wrote it for white people, um, which is so funny. No one asks white people this, by the way, who did you write your book for? Um, But because I was asked it so much during the press kind of tour, I had to really think about it. And I realized I I didn't write this here flesh for black people. I didn't write it for white people. The only person I was thinking of when I wrote most days was my grandma. And I wrote it for her in the particular, in the particularity of her life and her story and her grief and her emotions. And, and that was enough. And I think, I think my art was better for it, as opposed to trying to kind of cater it to the masses or this unspecified, you know, generalized gaze. I don't know if I'll think differently about this in two years, so maybe I will. But right now, I think the the opposite is probably a gaze of particularity, really seeing a person for who they are in their context. And I think um, how to not kind of operate out of that white gaze or the white male gaze is to choose silence a, a spiritual discipline of silence a lot and 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 choose listening um and not silence in the cowardly way but i think there is a, a silence that's quite courageous that just is enough time to let you take account of a room and really contend with what is my body doing in this space what did my entrance into this space just do because you know if a woman walk oh, if a woman walks into a room of men we think these things often, not always, but I've had that moment of walking into a room of men and I'm very aware of my body as a black person. I've had the moment of walking into a room of white people and I've had that moment. If everyone has, to ta- has a responsibility and has a moment where they're taking account of how their, their body kind of forms a room, um, shapes a room, I think w- we would be better for it. Um, and also asking ourselves, what does it mean to stay in the room? I could say a word about liturgy here, but I'll pause. What does it mean to stay in the room, even when it's not built for you? It wasn't built for you and in, 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 with you in mind. And is that okay? Are you capable of remaining? Um, yeah. Please say a word about liturgy. Yeah. So I think about, I'm biased because I'm a liturgist, but I think liturgy is an amazing kind of practice of this, um, of, when you have to, when you're committed to staying in the words, these words that might not have been written for you, um, pe- white people often DM me and they say, "Is it okay that I'm in this space, this black liturgy space? Like, is it? I, I feel, I feel like I'm intruding." And I, I think, well, no, just don't come into it as an intruder. Like, are you capable of staying in the words? even if they don't make sense to you. And I think liturgy does that to us, not just in terms of race, but in terms of all kinds of lived experiences. You might encounter a phrase or a word that doesn't immediately resonate or that you, it's not actually what you're living, but together we're committed to, to reciting the words to, together. And I think there's some kind of mysterious solidarity that happens in, in liturgy when, when done well.
0: Yes, is the difference between the kind of hyper-individualized, uh, you know, algorithmically designed for our preferences, just way where our formation works to train us to be consumers and then being prepared to say, I will say some collective truths with other people and collectively these are true for us. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just wanted to read a quote for the sake of those who haven't read the book yet. People talk about God as three distinct people in one. If this is true, it means the whole cosmos is predicated on a diverse and holy community. And if we bear the image of God, that means we bear the image of a multitude. And that to bear the image of God in its fullness, we need each other. Maybe every culture, every household, every community bears that image in a unique way. I, I love that, that the image of God is a multitude. It's really helped with a the theological puzzle I've been chewing at. For many years um and i think one of the things that comes through in your book and in your work is this trying to diversify what is legitimate public expression and as we've said some of that is about saying our bodies are a form of reasoning too our feelings are a form of reasoning too Mm -hmm. um and there is two thinkers that are one of which I've had on podcast, one of which I know elsewhere who are saying similar things. Um, one of whom is Mina Salami and she's a black feminist. She has a book called Sensuous Knowledge. Um, and it's really this kind of the, the wisdom that we see coming through Audre Lorde and Toni Morrison uh, is refusing to have an anthropology that we are human beings in jars who reason and everything. It's that kind of enlightenment idea. Mm -hmm. And then there's someone else who's called Ian McGilchrist, who is a neuroscientist. um, And he is uh, basically saying the same thing as Mina Salami, but he's doing it with brain scans because he is a um, neuroscientist. And he's talking about left hemisphere ways of knowing and right hemisphere ways of knowing and that we've created a world that is very left hemispheric which is concrete linear closed and that what (laughs) whole swathes of other wisdom Mm -hmm. intuitive creative emotional imaginative have been delegitimized and that what the the ways the world needs to change is we need to uh be comfortable with both forms of knowing Mm -hmm. i think ian McGillchrist is massively better known (laughs) than mina salami Mm -hmm. because it's hard for anyone even to say we need a wider range of ways of knowing without doing it in left hemisphere, reason, mm-hmm. right? You yeah. need to say, here's the brain scan," So I can appeal to your pre-existing sense of reason for you to take me seriously enough for me to take you on this journey over here. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to kind of offer that and say, what have you learned about taking up the space to tell stories to own your story, to express your emotions, to tell the truest stories, to go back to your original sacred value? What helps us?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I, I, I think a, a, a lot of things can, can help us. Um, I'll, I'll speak for my, myself first and maybe I'll speak a little more generally. But um, yeah, I, am, wh- I was a very emotional child my friends now, they're like, surely not. But I I was, I was, I was a weeper, a quiet choir, a, a, a quiet crier. Um, and I would just sit by the window and cry and my dad never really knew what was going on or what was, I didn't know what was going wrong in me. I just felt so deeply, but was kind of slowly shamed out of that. Um, cause I come from quite a happy family. And so now I, I, don't really have the same emotional depth of my childhood and I'm trying to reclaim it. Um, but it's, it, it takes work. And and like you said, even when I'm speaking to people about emotions and I mean, black emotion is kind of one of the pillars of the black liturgies project. Even when I'm speaking to people about it, I feel the need to kind of over intellectualize it so that people still take me seriously. It's, it runs deep. I know exactly what you mean. Um, there's a beautiful, Audre Lord says that she says, um, the white father said, I think, therefore I am. And the black mother, the poet within each of us whispers, I feel, therefore I'm free, which I just love because it's, it's, it, she, she says it was poetry, not with facts, not with, you know, she says it was poetry. And so I, I, I guess the, the closer I get to the the heart of a poet in me the more i kind of feel confident in saying there is a form of knowledge that is maybe less precise that isn't so interested in clarity and answers but actually is is free and kind of mystery and and confusion and being sad one moment and and happy one moment and and allowing that to be okay um but I, 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 oh, I feel like I've said this so much this weekend about like the company you keep, but I really do think that it's like, if, if you want to be able to tap into your emotions in a meaningful way, but you're around a bunch of very stoic, um, emotionally demeaning people, that's a, that's a very tough battle. But who, who do you have around you who can, who can guide you there, who can model that for you in a way that if you, you feel like, okay, I can mirror that and it won't be a threat to anyone
0: Thank you, Cole Arthur Riley, for speaking to me at the Sacred Life. Thank you. Gosh, that was such a um, satisfying and moving conversation. Largely because Cole is so careful, and honest, and thoughtful with what she brings. She really does try and hold to that sacred value of um, telling the true story. I've listened to a lot of interviews with her and she didn't do the thing that um, people sometimes can do, which is just say the same thing in the same way again and again, which is easy and completely understandable when you're doing a lot of book promotion. It felt like she was um, really hearing my questions and answering them, which is... um, the ingredients for a, a proper conversation, really. And it is a relief that um, it went well because I find sacred lives so much more nerve-wracking. I felt this with Oliver Berkman. I felt this with Richard, Richard and Lydia Ayoade that um, what I'm trying to do in having a conversation with someone is create a connection, is really listen and hear each other, really see each other, Um really seek to understand and that's quite an intimate thing actually. It's quite um, a sort of vulnerable and precious thread of human connection which isn't always easy to weave. I've been learning how to do it on Zoom. Um, Sometimes it works amazingly and sometimes it, it just doesn't ever quite get to the level that I want it to get to. But having an audience of people watching this quite intimate, delicate Uh, process happen is different it is uh like a kind of having an emotional amplifier in front of you because whenever things get um I don't really mean tense I mean um you know when it feels like we're beginning to tread on slightly riskier territory you can feel it in the audience and and this audience were brilliant and I just kind of knew they were with me but uh it's a more exhilarating experience. It feels much more like kind of um, riding a stallion than trotting along on a pony. Um, I was a bit nervous also because Cole is, the things she's talking about are so tender and so vulnerable. She speaks of her own abuse, uh, generational trauma, you know, the racism she's experienced. And she talks about being a scared person. And so um, knowing how to create spaces that we can bring those parts of ourselves, the more wounded parts of ourselves, the um, the things we often hide in public, uh, out and share them in the way that can be so healing and humanizing, because we know it's not just we're not alone in the things that we go through and the things that we wrestle with, um, but doing it in ways that feel appropriate and not um, exploitative is always something that I'm puzzling away at in the background. And again, it's a big thanks to Cole and to the audience that that um, felt, I think, kind of healthy and and safe. And then obviously, just to name uh, the blindingly obvious thing, uh, I went in slightly nervous about being a white lady (laughs) and uh, accidentally just sort of stomping... (laughs) stomping with my big feet in my eagerness uh, to understand and question and, and knowing that I come as a fallible, f- fragile, prejudiced human with all my preexisting scripts and assumptions about people. And I was really gracious to Cole, responding to my question about the white gaze so profoundly, actually. I wanted to say, how do I not approach you in ways that will feel objectifying or just annoying, frankly? How do I just not be annoying as we try and connect across these differences? And it feels to me like maybe the most significant thing that was said was unapologetic particularity. And it chimes so deeply with what I'm learning that we need to challenge our cognitive shortcuts. We need to challenge the tribal bundling that we do and the assumptions that we have about people when we meet them and uh, get curious enough to see the unapologetic particularity of each human being in front of us. And in so doing, we will avoid um, objectifying or um, (laughs) irritating, hopefully, or even worse, you know, um, really hurting each other. So yes, um, just a wonderful answer to that quite vulnerable feeling question. What else am I reflecting on from it? Just, again, this sense of how powerful it is to understand someone's story and where they've come from. And I just loved hearing about the family members who have gifted Cole with such a sense of dignity and possibility. Um, Her dad and her grandma, both of whom have had really hard lives and really very deep struggles themselves. They're not perfect people, but they have um, equipped her to be someone who can take a life that has had too much pain in it and make it into something beautiful um, in the world. I really valued what she said about rage, rage as a source of connection, both that she said she also struggles with it, and I think a lot of us do. Maybe more women than men, I don't know. Maybe it's just a personality thing. Um, But that the thing from her grandma as uh, anger is what helped her stay connected to God, that anger can actually be something that connects us, as Willie Jennings argues, really, and she also said this beautiful thing about when she is—I can't remember whether she said about white supremacists or when she, you know, when she's angry at someone who is perpetrating an injustice, she's angry because it's a betrayal of their dignity. That she's almost angry on behalf of that human being's dignity. Um, in the way that maybe we can be angry if we have children at our children when they are betraying themselves, or angry at our friends. When they are um, just not living into their fullness, um, that there can be almost a self protective or a, a protective of them anger. It just, she put it so beautifully. It had a real kind of echo of James Baldwin for me as she was speaking. Um, and then she said this amazing thing about liturgy that there is a mysterious solidarity when we pray things together and we don't try and uh, optimize or individualize our words or our prayers, but we pray them together. I remember when I was um, going through a major faith crisis a while ago now, and I was in church with my husband and saying, I don't know how to pray the creed. Like, I'll just skip the bits I don't believe today, (laughs) which was most of it that day. And he said, that's not what the creed is for. We don't edit it according to our individual preferences. We pray it together because together we believe it. And there is something about faith as a collective activity, faith as solidarity. And it chimes obviously with what uh, Cole was talking about in terms of the, the image of God. In my tradition, it's often thought of as being like, each human being bears the image of God. And I think Cole would say, and I'm very drawn to this idea that we together bear the image of god that we as a body we as uh, a community we as a family bear the image of god and we're not a full image without each other we can't we can't um we can't do that dignifying humanizing liberating thing that christians believe humans are called to on our own beautiful um I really hope you enjoyed listening. You can find many episodes with people from a very wide range of different perspectives in our back catalogue. You can find me or the team on social media. We would love to hear from you. There have been a few beautiful reviews recently. Someone said that their friend had sent them the podcast in order to for them to be able to have discussions about it. If you were that friend, thank you. And if you were the person who left that review, thank you. Because nothing gladdens my heart more than the idea that we might be in some way helping other people have deeper conversations um so if you've thought about sending it to the to a friend maybe today's the day pick one that you think oh i'd love to talk to you about that that really thought provoked me um please do it and report back ideally but if it just happens and i never know i'm delighted to our team are dan turner who works so hard and so faithfully and s- at such a high standard of excellence uh, to get this podcast out and you never really see what he does his work is m- more important than mine and uh, I just wanted to honour him today and say a huge thank you to Dan Turner Fiona Howarth is also on our team she's with us while Lizzie Harvey is on maternity leave uh, Drew Hawley is our editor and our music is by Luke Stanley with vocals by Lizzie Harvey she's multi-talented. If you don't already know The Sacred is a project of a think tank which is called Theos. It is based in the UK and seeks to bring a perspective that faith has much to offer in public life that is a gift not a threat And that when we think intelligently and rigorously and generously about faith and identity and values, it makes it easiest for us to live together, uh, for us to build a common life in which we can all flourish. So if you only know the sacred and you haven't come across Theos, you might be interested to check out their wider work at theosthinktank.co.uk. In the meantime, I will see you for our second episode of our new series next week.